so let's get our seats so that we can begin. We have a lot of material to cover. There was a slight change in the lectures, so what you would notice is that I have updated some of your slides on Sakai, because I don't think that you got an introduction to the GI tract. So where the pertinent anatomy is actually important, I have actually placed it on the side so that you can actually refer to it. All right, so today we'll start the embryology of the GI tract. And as most of you know, embryology sometimes could be a little bit abstract. So I will try to simplify it as much as possible so that you will be able to understand. So these are the slides that you are accustomed to. Sign reading the objectives, and let's start with a slide. So basically, you would realize, of those of you who would have done the undergraduate, you would have seen that the GI tract is basically a tube that runs from the mouth to the anus. And you have different modifications along that tube. You're going to have the stomach, you're going to have the small intestines, as well as the large intestines. Now, in order to understand the anatomy of the GI tract, the tract is actually arbitrarily divided into foregut, midgut, and hindgut. And these are going to be your passwords for the entire um, course in GI anatomy. Now, you here you have the esophagus, you have the stomach, then you have the duodenum, which goes into the ileum and jejunum. It then goes into the ascending colon, transverse colon, and descending colon. So that's the part the food is going to take. So when you do your physiology, you realize what actually happens in those different areas. My goal is not to actually explain the physiology, but to give you the anatomy of it. So as I said, for the division, or to understand the GI tract, we are going to divide it into foregut structures, midgut structures, and hindgut structures. The foregut structures start from the oropharyngeal membrane, which is basically the mouth, and it goes all the way down to the second half of the duodenum. And I want you to pay particular attention to this because you would realize that there are three slides that I have placed in your packet, and it is very important. These are things that you will have to learn and memorize and know in your sleep. So this area in black represents the foregut, and you can, when you do the second part of the course, you would realize that there's a pharyngeal part, there's a thoracic part, and what we are concerned about is the lower part of the esophagus all the way down to the anus. So then we go on to the, the midgut structures. So your midgut structures start from the second half of the duodenum, jejunum, ileum, and then goes ascending colon, and then two-thirds, the proximal two-thirds of the transverse colon. That makes up your midgut. Your hindgut is the distal one-third of the transverse colon, you have a descending colon, sigmoid colon, and rectum. So these are the derivatives of the foregut, which I have just stated. Here is derivatives of the midgut, and what I want you to pay particular attention to is that this here is a boundary between the foregut and the midgut. And we will see the importance of that in a little while, but puts two stars by this. Then you have a derivative of your hindgut, which will be the left one-third of a transverse colon, your descending colon, sigmoid colon, rectum, and the anal canal up to the pectinate line. So in the pelvis, you would have realized that we studied the pectinate line, 
and we are going to just remind ourselves the importance as the lecture continues. So this is just a representation of the gut tube. It's very important to remember and realize that the gut tube is considered a tube that runs from mouth to anus. It has different divisions, foregut, midgut, and hindgut. These structures that are represented here, the esophagus stomach, half of the proximal half of the duodenum, the pancreas, liver, and gallbladder, as well as the spleen. Very important to note right here, the spleen is not considered a foregut structure. It developed in the dorsal mesogastrium. We're talking about peritoneal membranes okay, a week from now. So that's also something that you need to remember. The foregut, these structures, midgut, the second half of the duodenum, jejunum, ilium, the appendix, cecum, ascending colon, as I said, the, the proximal two-thirds of the transverse colon, and then the hindgut is going to be the proximal, sorry, the distal one-third of the transverse colon, descending colon, sigmoid colon, and rectum. Right. So once you know what are the foregut structures, what are the midgut structures, and what are the hindgut structures, what we are going to actually ask you to memorize are the arteries that provide blood supply to foregut structures, midgut structures, and hindgut structures. So these arteries come off of the abdominal aorta, and they are three of them, celiac trunk, the superior mesenteric artery, and the inferior mesenteric artery. The celiac trunk is going to supply all of the foregut structures. The superior mesenteric artery is going to supply all of the midgut structures, and the inferior mesenteric artery is going to supply all of the hindgut structures. So what is, this is what this diagram is also telling you. All right? So this is just a cartoon diagram representing the branches of the aorta we saw when we did the posterior abdominal wall last semester. There are paired and unpaired branches. We are talking about the unpaired branches that you find in the midline. So there you have your celiac trunk and the structures it supplies. You have the superior mesenteric artery, the structures it supplies, and then you have the inferior mesenteric artery, the structures which it supplies. As I said, this is going to be the main theme throughout the development of the GI tract. Know your structures, what, is, what are foregut structures, what are midgut structures, what are hindgut structures, and also which artery actually supplies them. So let's look at the primordial gut. So this is a cross-section through the embryo. And here you can see the cranial portion. Here's the caudal portion. And in this region here, we can see the, the, the developing gut tube, which is actually in yellow. So there's a head portion, there's a mid portion, and then there's a lower portion. And this mid-gut actually communicates with the vitiline duct. Or I should say this gut tube communicates with the umbilical vesicle through the vitiline duct. Now, the yolk sac, what you would realize is that some books still use yolk sac, vitiline duct, etc. But for all intents and purposes, we want to make sure that, the, that you know that the yolk sac is the umbilical vesicle and the vitiline duct is the omphaloenteric duct. Okay? So let's make those changes wherever you see vitiline duct, you put the actual terms.
So this is what we see. This got tube running from mouth to anus. Very important. Communicates with the yolk sac or the umbilical vesicle through this vitiline duct. And I want you to put a star by this because you will see it's very, very important because if that vitiline duct remains, it's going to produce an entity which we call Merkel's diverticulum, which we'll talk about in the lecture. Right. So, also important, and you'd learn from histology, that the yolk sac, actually some of the cells, invaginates or goes through this vitiline duct, and it's going to line this tube. That endodermal lining is going to produce your epithelial lining and your glands. The connective tissue is going to come from your splanchnic mesoderm. And the nervous cells is going to come from neural crest cells. Alright, so basically what has happened here in this diagram, we have seen from the previous diagram the tube running alongside the dorsal aspect of the embryo and that yolk sac or umbilical vesicle is going to be invaginated or absorbed into the developing embryo. And because of folding, we're going to have three folds. We're going to have the foregut or the head fold, the midfold or lateral folds, and then you have a tail fold. And when that gut becomes or incorporated into the head fold, it is called the foregut. The part associated or is a communication with the yolk sac is called the midgut. And then the part that is associated with the, with the caudal fold is called the hindgut. So that's where you get your division, your foregut structures, midgut structures, and hindgut structures. One of the concepts that we must be, or we must remember, and you probably would have seen when you did the esophagus, is that you have, because of this epithelial lining, or endoderm, you have this epithelial lining, and what happens is that at a certain point during development, the cells are going to proliferate and fill the lumen. And once it fills the lumen, it becomes a solid core. After another period, what happens is that you have recanalization of this lumen, and that is going to happen throughout the gut. So it happens from mouth to anus, or from the esophagus all the way down to the anus. Now, two terms can actually be contributed, or we can think of two terms being produced because of this canalization and recanalization. So once there is partial canalization, we talk about stenosis, it means narrowing, and when there's absence of that recanalization, we talk about atresia. So this is a concept that you would have to remember as we study the GI tract. So the first one, or the first organ that we're going to study is the stomach. And as you can see here, most of you would realize that here you have the liver, your gallbladder, here's your spleen, this is the greater momentum, and the stomach starts from the distal part of the esophagus and goes basically to the proximal part of the duodenum. So it opens, so the esophagus opens in the stomach in a region called the cardia. This region here is called the fundus. Here we have the body of the stomach. And in this region here, we'll have the pylorus. 
don't worry about this too much. I'm going to go through it again when we do the actual GI organs. But what I want you to pay attention to is that you, in this stomach, you have a lesser curvature and a greater curvature. So this red line here represents your lesser curvature, and this other line here represents your greater curvature. As I said, this is your pyloric region, which we're going to study. First part of a duodenum, second part of a duodenum. So these are the structures that I want you to remember. What you can also see here is that you have the celiac trunk, and it is going to supply all of the foregut structures, liver, pancreas, spleen, stomach, gallbladder, etc. So bearing this brief anatomy in mind, let's study the development of the stomach. So the stomach starts as a fusiform dilatation, as you can see here. As we said, it's a tube, and that tube is oriented along the longitudinal axis of the developing um, embryo. It's going to have two borders. It's going to have an anterior border, which is towards the front, and it's going to have a posterior border, which is towards the back. And very, very importantly, I want you to differentiate these terms. The anterior border is towards the front. The posterior border is towards the back. And it has two surfaces. It has a left surface and a right surface. And we're going to see the importance of that. So, very important. Underline your right borders and left borders and your surfaces. Now, what's going to happen is that the posterior border, because of rotation, there's going to be a rotation for 90 degrees, and the posterior border is going to go faster than the anterior border. So remember what I just said. So we have the anterior border, front, posterior border, so what's the back? I have a left surface, and I have a right surface. Now I am going to rotate for 90 degrees in the clockwise direction. So it means, therefore, that my, this is my left side, this is my right side, this hand is come, going to come to the, towards the front, and this is going to come towards the back. And this is a very important rotation, because what you would realize is that the left surface comes towards the front and forms the anterior wall of the stomach, and the right surface goes towards the back and forms the posterior wall of the stomach. The anterior border is going to become the lesser curvature, and the posterior border is going to become the greater curvature. All right? Everybody understands that? There's a lot of rotation in the GI tract, and I hope by the end of the lecture you don't get giddy. Okay, so just pay attention to these little things that I'm telling you. So here we have it. So this happens. So we have the posterior border going faster than the anterior border. And at the end of it all, we have, this is the state of affairs. So we have the lesser curvature, the greater of curvature, the, an, the left surface becomes the anterior border, and the right surface becomes the posterior border. So this is what I basically said here. The anterior border moves towards the right, and the posterior border moves towards the left. So as you can see here, this is your Greater your lesser curvature towards the right because here's your liver, and here's the greater curvature towards the left. Here's the spleen. Okay, that's for your orientation. So, after all of that takes place, 
the stomach lies along the transverse axis and I said the left surface becomes the anterior wall of the stomach and the right surface becomes the posterior wall. That is also important because in your notes as you go along what you'd realize is that you have your left surface, right surface. If I'm the esophagus it means that this here is going to be the left vagal nerve, this is going to be the right vagal nerve, you have rotation so the left vagus, vagal nerve becomes the anterior vagal trunk and the right one becomes the posterior vagal trunk. So that's why you have the left vagal nerve innervating the anterior portion of the stomach, or anterior wall of the stomach, and the right vagal nerve innervating the posterior wall of the stomach. All right. So because of that rotation, we have cavities that will be formed. And we're going to talk much more about that in the next couple of lectures. However, what I want you to appreciate now so this is the, for orientation, this is a cross-section through the developing feet, uh, embryo. Here is the dorsal aspect, here is the ventral aspect. And what we're going to be thinking about here is that you have this lining here, which is going to be called peritoneum. And then the peritoneum is going to connect with the visceral structures. And that connection is going to be called dorsal mesentery. So basically, mesenteries are double fold of peritoneum that connects organs to body wall. So here we have the dorsal mesentery and we have the stomach right here. Let's forget about the spleen for a little bit. So connecting the posterior wall to the stomach, we're going to call that dorsal mesogastrium, double fold of peritoneum that comes from the posterior abdo abdominal wall and engulfs the stomach. Just as we have the dorsal mesentery, we have a ventral mesentery. And here you can see the developing liver. I don't want you to pay much attention to this right now. So connecting the stomach to the ventral wall is going to be called ventral mesentery, which is a double fold of peritoneum. Now because of the rotation of that stomach, what we're going to have happening is that this cavity, which you will study in a couple of lectures, the peritoneal cavity, will be divided into two parts. That the one that's in front of the liver is going to be called the greater sac and the one behind the stomach is going to be called the lesser sac. So the one in front of the stomach is going to be called the greater sac, the one behind the stomach is going to be called the lesser sac. Now as you can see, you have organs developing in the different mesenteries. Now when you did your musculoskeletal lectures, you realized that ligaments connected bone to bone. Here in the peritoneum, ligaments are going to connect organs to organs. So, in the ventral mesogastrium, which connects the stomach to the anterior abdominal wall, you're going to have this structure here, which is liver, and the connection between the liver and the anterior abdominal wall is going to be called the falciform ligament. And between the stomach and the liver is going to be called the hepatogastric ligaments. Behind the stomach, we have, sorry, behind the stomach, we have another group of structures. We have the spleen. So running from the stomach to the spleen is going to be called the glastrospanic ligaments. And because of that rotation, you will see you have another ligament, which is called the spleno-renal ligaments. All right? This is going to make much more sense to you as we develop the lectures in the GI tract. But just 
keep these concepts in mind. I know it can be a little bit confusing, but these are the concepts that you need to understand. So, like everything else in embryology, we can have things going wrong. So one of the first entities that we're going to speak about is congenital hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. In this case, it's not really a problem with recanalization. However, the muscles, as the level of pyloric sphincter, it becomes enlarged. And you can just imagine, as you would learn, here you have stomach contents, you have duodenal contents, and the food from the stomach, stomach is a reservoir for food, normally passes as chyme into the duodenum under control of the sphincter. So if the sphincter is actually blocked, it means that there is going to be a collection or food is going to collect in the stomach. All right? So what are the clinical symptoms? The stomach becomes distended, as I explained, and it is expelled with extreme force. So one of the key features of, congen of congen uh, congenital hypertrophic pyloric stenosis is projectile vomiting. All right, so I want you to underline that because this is actually what distinguishes this particular entity. And what's also important is that the vomit is not stained with bile. Now, what you'd realize that bile, the bile duct enters into the second part of the duodenum. So here we are talking about uh, stenosis proximal to that bile duct entrance. So it means, therefore, that vomit is not going to be bile stained. All right, so this is what I basically put here for you. So here we can see a barium study. So this for your orientation, here's your, greater your lesser curvature, greater curvature. Here is the area of the pyloric sphincter. Here's your first part of duodenum. Here is the second part of duodenum. And what you can realize here is this defect in filling. This is nice and white. This here is radiolucent, meaning that there's no filling. So here you can appreciate this stenosis. So these are the clinical signs. It's non-bilious projectile vomiting. It normally happens shortly after birth. One of the key features is that the infant feeds, and very, very soon after feeding, because the milk cannot go into the, sec the first part of the duodenum, the infant actually projects or vomits, and that form of vomit is projectile and non-bile stain. Now, some people have actually, or in the literature, there is a palpation of a mass, which is normally described as being olive shape, and peristalsis is what moves the food throughout the GI tract. So there is a wave of peristalsis that you can see from the left side to the right. All right, so this is what you can use to diagnose it, and one of the key techniques that you use is the ultrasound. So let's move on. Second area that we're going to cover is the duodenum. So just for your information, it has four parts. You have a superior part, you have descending part, transverse part, and then an ascending part. What is very important, and you can see the second part of the duodenum at the place where the hepatopancreatic duct opens into the second part of the duodenum is that demarcation between foregut and midgut. So let's look quickly at the development of a duodenum. So in the development of a duodenum, it develops from the caudal part or, or the tail end of the foregut and the cranial part of the midgut. We saw those two divisions. 
it forms a C-shaped loop, which is forward-oriented ventrally. And as the stomach rotates, what happens is that the duodenum becomes transposed to the right, and it becomes retroperitoneal, which we would see when we do the lectures next week. So the same principle as we spoke about for the stomach and the esophagus, there is proliferation of the epithelium, there is recanalization, and we get the patent lumen. And if we have faulty recanalization, we can have stenosis or atresia. So, duodenal stenosis, we said, was a partial occlusion of the lumen due to incomplete recanalization. And in this case, it will lead to the same type of symptoms as uh, the congenital pyloric stenosis. However, because you have the bile duct opening in the second part of the duodenum, the vomitus is bile stained. If you have atresia, it means therefore that you do not have a patent lumen. All right, so you have stenosis, narrowing off, partial recanalization, and then you have atresia, the absence of that recanalization. So this is what it looks like. So here you can see the abdominal cavity. This is the stomach, the dilated stomach, and here you can see the duodenum first and second part of a duodenum. At this level here, you're gonna have the atresia. And in this case, what you have happening, because the baby doesn't have anything in its uh, tube, you can have air, so the stomach is full of air, and then you can see the duodenum being full of air. You have to remember that as we breathe, we are going to swallow air, and that air is gonna pass from the mouth to the anus, okay? So when you look at it as under the ultrasound, you will see two bubbles and that is normally termed as the double bubble sign. One bubble, dilatation being the stomach, and the other bubble being the duodenum. Had some clicker questions, I don't know where they went to. Anyway, you can get that afterwards. So here we have, we're gonna look at the bile duct, the development of the liver and the biliary system. So as you can see, we have liver, gallbladder, we spoke about the pancreas, and we're going to study how that bile duct opens in the second part of the duodenum. So these structures here, we're going to look at them. All right. So let's look at the liver. So here is the anterior part of the, the developing embryo, the posterior part of the developing embryo, and the liver starts as this hepatic diverticulum right here. So superiorly, you're going to have your septum transversum. So let's look at that higher magnification. Here is your liver. So this is the actual liver bud. And the caudal part is going to form that liver. So you have the diverticulum here forming the cranial part forming the liver. And then the caudal part is going to form the gallbladder and the cystic duct. That's all that you need to know about the liver. That's all that you need to know about the liver. The cords and all the other stuff is not an object of, your, of the anatomy course. Now let's look at the pancreas and the duodenum. So here you have the duodenum. And as I said, you have a first, second, third, and fourth part. And what you would realize is that the 
head of the pancreas, so this is the pancreas, it has a head, unsinate process, body and tail. The head of the pancreas is actually cradled in the arms of the duodenum, the second and third, fourth parts of that duodenum. And what I want you to pay attention to is that you have these ducts here, which is the main pancreatic duct. It's going to form or join with the bile duct to form this opening here, which is going to be called the hepatopancreatic ampulla. And that point is the, mid, the, the junction point between the foregut and the midgut. So as I said, parts of the pancreas, we spoke about its relationship with the other abdominal structures. Right, so let's see how that pancreas is formed. So generally what happens is that this pancreas is going to form from two buds, two endodermal buds. You have a dorsal pancreatic bud and a ventral pancreatic bud. The dorsal pancreatic bud appears first and then the, the ventral pancreatic bud appears uh, two days afterwards. What's going to happen is that this ventral pancreatic bud is going to rotate as the stomach rotates to meet the dorsal pancreatic bud. So here you have the rotation. So the ventral pancreatic bud rotates to fuse with the dorsal pancreatic bud. And here you can see them forming the pancreas as we now know it. Now what we're going to look at is the actual ducts. Because as the rotations take place, you would realize that the, pan the ventral pancreatic bud had a duct and the dorsal pancreatic bud had its main duct. So what's going to happen is that you're going to have the dorsal pancreatic bud when it fuses with the ventral pancreatic bud you're going to have the head of the pancreas being formed by part of the dorsal pancreatic bud and part of the ventral pancreatic bud. There's a part of the head of the pancreas called the uncinate process and that is formed by your ventral pancreatic bud. So let's see how the rotation takes place. Let's go back. So here is your ventral pancreatic bud. You have rotation of the duodenum to the right. This ventral pancreatic bud joins this dorsal pancreatic bud. And as a result of which you have the main pancreatic bud joining the, so I should say the dorsal pancreatic bud joining the ventral pancreatic bud and this here forms your main pancreatic duct. The distal end, or I should say the proximal end of the main pancreatic duct, it forms the accessory pancreatic duct. So you have two ducts. You have the accessory pancreatic duct and the main pancreatic duct. So the main pancreatic duct, it develops from the proximal part of the ventral bud and the distal part of the dorsal bud. This is what we just mentioned here spoke about the accessory pancreatic duct, how it is formed. So, because of that rotation, what can happen is that you can have a bifid pancreatic bud. So you have two buds. And what happens because of that rotation, the ventral and dorsal pancreatic buds, they can come and they can actually 
be, and being closed around the second part of the duodenum. And once that happens, it can form a ring of pancreatic tissue. And as we said, food is passing from the stomach into the second part of the duodenum, and this forms an obstruction. So it means, therefore, that if there's an obstruction here, there's going to be dilation of the duodenum and the stomach. So as you can see here, this region here, looking at the cartoon diagram, this is the stomach. Here you have the first, the pyloric region, the first part of the duodenum. This is the second part of the duodenum. This is where you would expect to have your pancreas. You have the pancreas, pancreatic tissue forming a ring of tissue on the second part of the duodenum, as shown by this dark area here and that is going to produce an obstruction. What you would realize is that there is dilation proximal to the area of the obstruction, and as you can see here, there's very little contrast moving through the second part of the duodenum. So this pancreatic bud can actually form an obstruction. And as we would see, the type of vomiting that we would have is bile stain because the bile duct has actually opened to the second part of the duodenum. The development of the spleen, very, very simple. As I said, the spleen is considered a foregut structure. However, it doesn't develop along the tube. It actually develops in the dorsal mesogastrium. So you have uh, proliferation of mechanical cells in the dorsal mesogastrium, and that's how your spleen is formed. And that's all that you need to know about your spleen. So let's look at the midgut structures. And we said that the midgut starts from the second part of the duodenum, just distal to the ampulla vata. It goes from the second part of the duodenum, third part of the duodenum, fourth part of the duodenum, jejunum, ilium, ascending colon, cecum, transverse colon up to the two-thirds of the transverse colon and that will be your midgut. So what you can see here, here is the representation. Duodenum starts here, the stomach has been cut away. Duodenum, parts of the duodenum, you have the jejunum forming its loops of bowel, jejunum, and then you have your ilium. Ilium goes into cecum, cecum continues up as Cecum, then you have your ascending colon, then you're going to have your transverse colon up to the proximal two-thirds of the transverse colon. Now, one of the things that we have to remember is that if you look at the orientation of the midgut, what you would realize is that the ileum and the jejunum is actually displaced towards the left. The ascending colon is towards the right, and the transverse colon is more or less superior and anterior. And that becomes very important because once we go into the next set of lectures, we would understand why that becomes significant. So midgut structures, we said from the distal part of the second part of the duodenum all the way up to the two-thirds of the transverse colon. So let's look at the midgut. Once again, the embryology of the midgut. So here we have this structure here. This is the dorsal aspect of the developing embryo. Here we have this artery here, which is going to be called the superior mesenteric artery, which is the artery of excellence for the midgut. And 
what we have happening is that we have the formation of this loop, a U-shaped loop. Now that U-shaped loop is going to elongate and herniate through the umbilical cord. And that becomes very important because you have to remember at the time which this is happening, we need to develop the intestines. However, the liver is very, very large and we also have the descent of the kidneys. So it means, therefore, that this gut or this part of the gut has to herniate through the umbilical cord in order for its development to take place. And this is known as a physiological herniation. Also important is that this mid-gut loop communicates through this stalk here, which is your vitellin duct. All right. So when this happens, what we can expect to happen, we will see in the actual next lecture. Very important before I go on to the next lecture, the loop forms two parts. It has a cranial part and a caudal part. The cranial part is going to be consisting of the second part of the duodenum, the jejunum, ilium, sorry, the distal part of the ilium. That will be the caudal, sorry, the cranial limb. The caudal limb is going to be the distal part of the ilium all the way up to the two-thirds of the transverse colon. So your cranial limb consists of second half of the duodenum, Shishunum and half of the ilium and the caudal limb will consist of distal half of the ilium ascending colon and two-thirds of the transverse colon. All right. So let's quickly get out of this. Give me one minute. Rolf, could you come down here a minute, please? Could you just get the guy in the back for me, please? The guy in the back. None of my... None of the... Um,
I don't know what happened there. Okay, guys, let's take a 10-minute break and come back so we can get this sorted out. Guys, you can take a 10-minute break so we can get this technical difficulty sorted out and we come back. 10-minute break, yeah, 10-minute break. <laughs>